All right, good morning. How is everybody today? All right, show of hands, show of hands this morning. How many of you have already had at least one Thanksgiving dinner? Right? Come on. Okay, anybody, anybody had at least two? I've already had two. I've already had two. I had We Cares Thanksgiving dinner on Thursday. We had Churchwide on Wednesday. I got two more coming this week, and I'm, I'm not mad at it. I'm just going to be honest. I'm, I'm, I'm okay with it. I'm okay with it. I love this time of year, and I don't just love this time of year because of the food and the football, but I love this time of year because it's one of the few times that we're forced to hit the pause button on this crazy thing called life and actually stop and count all the blessings that we have in life. It's one of the few times we're, we're ca- caused to stop in the middle of our hectic schedules and actually go, hey God, man, I see beauty around me. I don't just see chaos, right? We talked about that a little bit last week as we studied the life of Naomi and Ruth, right? As we walk through, through this, this book, it's called The Story. Just chronological segments taken directly from Scripture. They've removed the, the chapter headings and the verse markers, and for some reason, it really does help bring some clarity to what's going on. And the intent is just to show us the, the overarching view of Scripture, how it all fits together as one story of God, and, and how we fit into that story eventually is where we're headed. Hopefully you guys get that. And so um, last week, we, 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 well, actually two weeks ago, we started studying a really difficult time in the history of this new nation of, of God called Israel. And uh, it's a 330-year span of, I, I don't know what to call it, we, we call it cycles of apostasy is the theological term, but, but it, it's just cycles of, of sin and, and rebellion, uh, of, of discipline and um, enslavement, and then, and then of, of deliverance and, and peace. And it just happens again and again and again and again and again. Uh, and it's all called the time of the judges. And I want to encourage you, if you're with us this morning, you missed either of the last two weeks of message, go back and listen to those online, fbcelgin.org, or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. They're, they're, really, they're really worthwhile as, as we study kind of what's going on. And so last week was, was two weeks ago, we talked about the, the cycle of judges, but last week we got a first-person perspective during that time. During the time, we got to see through the eyes of, of two people that were living during that time. And so through the eyes of Naomi and Ruth, we saw how difficult life was during this, this 330-year span. And this week, we're going to get another glimpse, another first-person perspective on life during this time. And we're going to do it now um, looking at the lives of a, of a prophet named Samuel and the guy that God tells him to go ahead and anoint the king of Israel named Saul. And that's where we're going to be this morning. And uh, before we jump in, I'd, I'd like to ask you to join me in a word of prayer. Father, um, you are good, and uh, your love does indeed endure forever. And I, I'm thankful for an opportunity to pause and to give you thanks for all that you have done for us. Lord, I fear that most days we wake up and we um, get stuck in the grind we get to work, we, we, we get moving, we get working, and, and I, I believe, I know I'm guilty of it, I think there's probably some other sinners here this morning too that would say, we forget to see the beauty. We forget to see all the good that you were doing. We focus on all the things we don't have. We focus on all the hurts. Lord, we need to be healed of that. Would you change our minds? Would you change our hearts? Would you change our eyes so that we can see your goodness and see your beauty in everything, in every 
journey of life. Holy Spirit, we want to um, invite you in now to come and take your place at our pulpit as the teacher of this church. We recognize that that is the case. We ask that you would exalt Jesus. And Jesus, as you are lifted up, would you please draw each of us closer to yourself that we might be transformed into your image and into your likeness. That God might be glorified in us. In Jesus' name, we pray all these things. Amen. Amen. During the time of Judges, a woman named Hannah comes to the temple to pray. And she's heartbroken. She longs for a child more than anything else on the face of the earth. And she's praying earnestly. She's praying fervently. She, she is, is, is praying in such an earnest, fervent way that her mouth is moving, but no words are coming out. And the priest on duty named Eli says, Hey, uh, listen, you're not supposed to lick her up before you come to church. Does. He, he thinks she's drunk. She says, I'm not drunk. I'm overwhelmed. I'm grieving because I hurt. She didn't even say what the hurt is. Eli looks at her and says, may the Lord bless you and give you whatever it is in your heart that you're hurting for. And the Lord does. She goes home and, and suddenly she, she's able to conceive and she has a son and, and his name is Samuel. His name is Samuel. And Samuel's going to be very special in the life of this nation of Israel. And, and he's going to be very special, um, I think, primarily probably because his mom and God kind of made a deal. And Hannah said, Lord, if you'll just bless me with a son, I, if you'll give him to me, I will give him right back to you. And, and so when, when Samuel's old enough, that's what she does. She actually takes him to the same temple, to the same priest, Eli, that thought she was drunk and says, hey, Eli, I'm going to give you my son Samuel and he's going to serve the Lord. His whole life is going to be about God's business. And so Samuel goes and he lives with Eli. And it's there when he's with Eli that he learns to discern the voice of the Lord. You remember the dream? And uh, that, was, that was the Lord calling him. And it's there um, that I, I love that, that God reveals himself to Samuel. It says, through his word. There Samuel learns the word of God and learns that God has always been speaking and God is still speaking. Now, remember what's going on in the life of this period of time is, is, is these cycles of sin and rebellion. Um, and so often we're caught up in this and, and, and they'll be overcome by uh, another nation, by the Philistines, the Amorites. And, and, and so Eli, um, during this time, he has two sons. And, uh, and well, they're not awesome. <laughs> and they go to battle and God's not with them because of disobedience and the Philistines. Uh, overtake them. We know that the Ark of the Covenant is, is taken away at one point, right? And uh, what, what ends up happening, Eli and both his sons die. And so Samuel comes up and he is the prophet. He, he's the primary spiritual leader of the entire nation. And, and God actually uses him to, to um, help subdue the, the Philistines. But as he gets older, uh, he tries to transfer his leadership onto his two sons eventually. And that's where we have a great problem. And this is what the text says. 1 Samuel chapter 8. Page 135 of your story. It says, but his sons did not follow his ways. They, they turned aside after dishonest gain, and they accepted bribes, and they perverted justice. They perverted justice. And so the people saw this. They saw that Samuel's trying to pass on leadership to his sons that are corrupt. And, and the people who aren't exactly uh, you know, followers of God um, strictly in the strict sense, right? I mean, they're constantly wavering and 
going after false gods. And, but, but even the people, the Israelites, the ones that have a tendency to go after the wrong things, they even see that these men of God are not really men of God. And so they protest. They protest. I, I don't know if you caught that this week, but it's really, they, they kind of come to Samuel and, and protest. And I'm envisioning like, like picket signs, you know, like, like, like some kind of Old Testament cardboard that says Occupy Israel. I don't know, something. Right? And, 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 and so they come and, and, and they protest. And, and uh, that, that's kind of uh, where I want to pick up. And so I'm going to read to you from the story. But if you've got your Bible open, I'm in 1 Samuel chapter 8. First uh, Samuel chapter 8, starting in verse 4. We're going to read all the way through 22. Because I want you to see what happens. Because this is really where I think God wants us to focus our hearts this morning. 1 Samuel chapter 8, starting in verse 4, page 135 of the story, the second paragraph. It says, So all the elders of Israel gathered together, and they came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, You are old. That's always nice, isn't it? Thanks. Thanks for that, guys. Appreciate it. My kids tell me that all the time these days. Dad, you're old. It's like, you just wait, buddy. You just wait. They come to Samuel and they say to him, you are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now, appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. And so he prayed to the Lord and the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you that they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day that I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Samuel told all the words that the Lord uh, of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and he will make them serve with his chariots and horses and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and others to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use he will take a tenth of your flocks and yourselves you yourselves will become his slaves when that day comes you will cry out for relief from the king that you have chosen but the lord will not answer you in that day but the people refused to listen to samuel no they said we want a king over us then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and to fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. Lord, please. And the Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. The rest of the story this week is all about that king. It's a man named Saul. He's a man's man. He, he, is, he is a head taller than every other man in Israel. The people are pumped, but the Lord isn't pleased. 
Saul's reign will last 42 years. It seems like a very long period of time, but his true time as king is much shorter than that. And God will seek a king after his own heart. I think we'll read about him next week. Now let's talk about what we can learn from this section of Scripture, the life of Samuel and Saul. Okay? Three lessons um, all have to do, all are centered around the person of God. Number one, first lesson, God wants to be the central ruling figure of our lives. God wants to be the central ruling figure of our lives. I want you to see the gravity of this request um, by the Israelites for King Samuel hears it. It breaks his heart. He goes before the Lord, and the Lord says this to him. He says, it's, it's not your fault. Now, you've got to understand why Samuel would be so upset. He is the primary spiritual teacher of the nation. <laughs> right? <laughs> not, not Elgin with 60 churches. One church, whole nation. Right? And he's the primary spiritual voice of God. And under his leadership, the people are now asking for an earthly king, an earthly king. He, he, he's got to feel like a failure. <laughs> but listen to what God has to say, 1 Samuel 8, 7 and, and 8, page 135. He says, listen to the people and what they're saying to you. It is not you that they've rejected, Samuel. They have rejected me as their king. As they've done from the day that I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. What God says is this act, this request, what Israel is really doing is rejecting God's rulership in their lives. Rejecting his rightful place in their lives. And it, and it begs the question for me as I was reading this week, like, what are they thinking? Right? Did, did anybody else read that? You're like, what are you doing? What, what are you thinking? What, was it an earthly king that heard your cries when you were enslaved in Egypt and, and, and rose up a deliverer? Was it an earthly king that spoke to Moses through a burning bush and, and called him to go to Pharaoh? Was it, was it an earthly king that provided the ten plagues that, that changed the heart of Pharaoh and made him release you from your captivity? Was it an earthly king that conjured up the pillar cloud? Was it an earthly king that held back the, the raging waters of the Red Sea and allowed you to walk across on dry ground? Was it an earthly king that swallowed up the army of Pharaoh without raising a sword? The answer is no, it wasn't an earthly king. It was God himself. It was the God of, of the universe. And, and, and this God has provided for their every need. For their every need. He, he himself has come down and camped out in the very center of their lives. He's given them new rules to live by. And, and, and a system for their sin to be atoned. He, he has given them, given them the promised land as an inheritance. Where he has gone before them and tumbled down even the greatest fortified walls. He's given it to them. And what does this God ask of them in return? To love him. To love him. To allow him to lead their lives. That's what God asks. Make no mistake, this call for a king, for an earthly king, is sin. It's an act of evil, according to Samuel. Look at this, First Samuel 12, 17, page 140. It's about harvest time. He's... Speaking to the people, he wants them to understand the gravity of their decision. He says, is it not wheat harvest now? 
I'm going to call on the Lord to send thunder and rain. I want you to see who really has been your deliverer. And you'll realize what an evil thing you did in the eyes of the Lord when you asked for a king. What an evil thing you did. And here's the deal. And we've got to be so careful. And we've got to be so careful. Because in our world, in our lives, we all face this exact struggle. There are countless things vying for this place in our life, for God's place, place as central ruler, right? Countless things. And man, they make bold promises, right? I, I mean, politics promise to be our savior these days, don't they? Man, if you just vote for this guy or for that guy, man, all of life is going to get better. Just believe, put your hope and your trust in that. Pride, yeah, pride, even, even pride in, in the country, nationalism. Nationalism now claims all of the credit for our freedom. Do you realize that? It's what we promote. We're not free because God's sovereign hand, we're free because we fought for it. Pulled ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We spend all our time and energy and effort talking about whether somebody is standing up for the flag. And I haven't heard anybody in the last few months talk about kneeling at the cross. Then there's that little thing called self that wants to sit in that chair that only belongs to God and that throne. You know, I don't want to. Or I do want to. Self, uh, at least mine, desires this mysterious thing called happiness. <laughs> Ties in with that other thing that wants to sit on the chair or the throne of our lives called pleasure. Just want to do what feels right. This just doesn't feel right. Just doesn't feel right. I'm just not happy anymore, the wife says as she leaves the husband. Just not happy. I know what God says, but I'm just not happy. Hear the weight of that. It's good things to our spouse, our kids. Right? Parents, there's a new religion today you should be aware of. I call it the religion of opportunity. Because our goal in life is now that we're going to give our children every opportunity we didn't have. Not realizing that that lack of opportunity is what actually made us who we are. So we're growing up a generation of children. Uh, get this, this is what they see. They don't see your hard work and they don't see your effort. They don't see how difficult life is because what you do in every waking moment of spare time you have is focus on them. And we wonder why these children grow up to think that they should just graduate and have a job and that the whole world revolves around them. Because what they have seen in us is that God is not the center of our lives, that they are. Countless things vying for this place as central ruler. And listen, this, this is the hard part, okay? If we allow any of those things to succeed and being our central ruler, then the words of Samuel apply to us. Then what we have done is evil in the sight of the Lord. Evil. Not bad. Not, not great. Not well. It's okay. Evil. Evil.
God wants to be the central ruling figure of our lives. It's a big statement. Lesson number two. God wants us to look and act like him, not like the rest of the world. God wants us to look and to act like him, not like the rest of the world. Listen, you may want to write this down. God's goal for your life is to stand out, not to fit in. God's goal for your life is to stand out from the world, not to fit in. The Israelites, his people, his children were supposed to be different. That was the whole point. (laughs) He says to Abraham, I'm going to choose you, I'm going to make a nation out of you, and through you, through this nation, the rest of the world is going to be blessed. You see, everything is supposed to flow out of Israel as a blessing to everybody else. Now the opposite is happening. They're looking at everyone else, and they're taking in all the stuff of the world. That's what they desire. They they don't want to be a channel through which blessing flows. They want to take in all of the darkness that surrounds. And these nations are pagan. They don't know God. They don't fear God. They bow down to idols. And every one of these nations has something in common. They all have the same political structure. They all have a king. All of them. They all have a form of governance other than God himself. Despite all that God has done, despite what he's currently doing, he's actually still at this, right, like he's, he's dwelling in, in their midst. Despite all of that, they idolize the way that these other nations are governed. And they want to look like these other nations. Worse yet, they, they want to be governed in a way other than God's way. And again, here's the danger. Man, we're like that. We are just like that. We like rulers that we can see. That we can judge. That we can vote for. Get them out of there if we don't like them. We like to call the shots. The problem with that is this. Psalm 115. He's talking about idols. He says, those that make them will be like them. And so will all who trust in them. That's a huge statement. Because what that statement says, the truth of God says, is that anyone that puts their trust in an idol is going to become like the thing they idolize. That they're going to to start looking less and less like God and start looking more and more like the thing that they're fixing their attention to. That's the truth of, of, of God's word. And when people meant to be ruled by God idolize and are driven by other forms of rulership, they become less like God and more like the thing they idolize. That's how term, a term like evangelical becomes a political statement. When, when, when people of God meant to proclaim that Jesus is the only way, instead began to make a religion out of their beliefs, and, and try to put that religion into a political spectrum, we end up becoming a group of people that are politicized, and, and we look just like all the people on the hill. Instead of the Savior who died on the hill. 
all who trust in them will become like them. You will look less like God and more like everyone else. And this is true of any idol. It's not just politics. Your neighbor gets a nice new house, a nice new car, and you you idolize them. You can get it too. Just work overtime. Take on some extra debt. Ignore your wife and your children. You can have it. Everything that goes with it. You will become like the thing you idolize. Less like God and more like the thing you idolize. And God, God wants us to look and to act like him. He wants to be the central ruling figure of our lives. That's not a, I'm, I, listen, I'm not trying to be political. It's not a Republican or a Democrat issue. It's a people of God issue. See, when we stand back and we study the Israelites like we did this week from, from, from up here, we say to ourselves, how crazy is this? I, I can't believe that these people, whom God has done so much for, are putting their hope in an election, in an earthly ruler, instead of God. Well, that'll preach, won't it? God's desire is for us to look like him, to talk like him, to walk like him, to love what he loves, to be holy, to be righteous, just to stand out, not to fit in. Number three. last lesson I believe we learned from the lives of Saul and Samuel in our text today is that God wants radical obedience, not rationalized defiance. Saul makes many mistakes um, here in 1 Samuel in these first 15 chapters as we read them. um, But two particularly show his biggest problem. His biggest issue is obedience. His, his biggest issue is, is obedience. When the going gets tough, Saul doesn't trust and obey. I guess they hadn't written that one yet. Instead, when the going gets tough, Saul tries to come up with a workaround. He weighs his options. He tries to figure out a way to do things his own way. The Israelites... Uh, they're going to take on the Philistines. Samuel tells Saul to go to Gilgal and to wait for him. He says, I'm going to be there. But man, the Philistine army is huge. It is huge. And as the Israelites gather, right, and this isn't the first huge army they face. This is the thing that, that, that really frustrates. It's not the first huge army they face. God has always taken care of them. But, but the men are starting to freak out. And here is Saul. He is, he is at least a foot taller than everybody under his command. He looks the part, and, and, and people are starting to leave, and, and he seemingly is powerless to keep them from leaving. And so he says, what, what can I do, man? The people are freaking, you know what I'm going to do? Hey, hey, go get the offering stuff. I'll just do it. I'll do it. We'll go in. We'll route them. It's going to be great. Now, now he's, he's been instructed by the man of God, this is not what you're supposed to do. You've got to wait on the Lord. Boy, that stinks sometimes, doesn't it? God says, no, I want you to wait. And you're like, I don't want to wait, Lord. Right? This will preach too, won't it? I, but I want it now, Lord. The consequences of rushing can be 
terrible. So Saul comes up with a workaround. Remember, Abraham came up with a workaround. That's how we got Ishmael. We've got some issues going on with that right now. Saul comes up with a workaround. Now, when Samuel arrives, he's, he can't believe it. It's just really amazing that he can't believe it. But he can't, he can't believe it. And, and, and listen, he's like, why, why did you do this? Why would you do this? Do you know what you've done? And listen to Saul's response. This is 1 Samuel 13, uh, verse 11 and 12. It's page 142 of your story. He says, well, when I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come, I like the blame placing there at the set time, and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I, I thought, I thought to myself, is, is a better translation, well, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and, 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 and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. He says, I thought, it means in Hebrew to think in one's heart. It means to feel compelled. <laughs> He's saying like, I knew what God said, but then this happened, and then, and then you see, and then that happened. Like, I, like I knew what God said, but, but I kind of felt like it would be okay. I felt like. Heart is deceitful above all else and beyond cure. Friends, that is rationalization at its core. That's its definition. Rationalization is an attempt to explain or justify doing something that we know is wrong. Just say that again. Rationalization is an attempt to explain or justify doing something that we know is wrong. Saul is going to do it again later. God's going to tell him, I want you to eliminate everything. He's going to say, no, I'm going to keep it as a bounty. And Lord, I'm going to give you a portion of it. Rationalization. Lord, I know you said this, but I'm, I'm going to figure out a way to do this. Listen, God doesn't want us to weigh our options. He wants us to obey his word. God doesn't want us to weigh our options. He wants us to obey his word. When God speaks clearly, he does not need our input. He doesn't need us to give him other routes or options to take. He doesn't need us to recalculate. Radical obedience, not rationalized defiance. So let's, uh, let's pack it up. Take the story home this week. Number one, first challenge to you is to make sure that God is the only one on the throne of your life. Four spiritual laws. I don't know if you've ever studied them. You go home and look at the picture, but we've got a little throne there, and, uh, and we, be, we all begin with, with a self, right, sitting on that throne, right? Unfortunately, as we go about through life, there's all kinds of things that want and vie to sit on that throne. There's only one rightful ruler. His name's Jesus, right? And uh, so we've got to make sure that God is the only one on the throne of our lives. You remember, I just said a moment ago, as, as I read through the text, and you probably did too, you had that, what, what are they thinking moment, right? What are they thinking wanting an earthly king? What are they thinking? Let me personalize that a little bit. What are we thinking? Was it a president that rescued us from our slavery to sin? Any of them. Let me ask you this. Was it our country or our wife or our children even who stepped out of heaven and into humanity 
and lived the perfect life that we could not. Was it money or success or our retirement account that paid the debt for our sins that we could not pay? Then what are we thinking? Make sure that God is the only one on the throne of your life. God's rightful place is as the central ruling figure of our lives. Anything else is evil. Two, ask God for a makeover. Ask God for a makeover. He wants you to look and to act like him. If you don't, uh, might I suggest repentance, and that's, that's awesome, uh, but you've got to go a step further. Uh, re- repentance, we like to think of repentance as just a do-over. Like, I'm just going to go back. Um, the problem with a do-over is we typically just go back and do it again. Uh, we don't just need a do-over. We don't just need a second chance. We actually need God to come and transform our lives is what we need. Because we need to look like God. And the truth is, I think when we got up this morning and we looked in the mirror, I, I don't know how many of us thought, wow, God, you look great. Wow, Jesus, you look good on me. You see it? It's who we should see when we look in the mirror. It's who we should see when we look down at our hands. We should see his. When we put on our shoes, on our feet, we should see his. And I'm just, I'm, I'm just going to tell you, I know, I know I need one. I bet you do too. God, God's got the ability. He's got the power. If you'll just come before him and say, God, I am so sorry. I look like all the idols I bow down to. Man, I'm, I'm, I'm politicized. I'm worried about money. I can't sleep at night. I'm not happy in my marriage. I, I'm not seeing it as a blessing right now. If you, if, you, if you just come before God and say, I need a makeover, he'll, he'll do it. He'll do it in a heartbeat, but you, you've got to ask him. It's more than just a redo. God, I need a complete transformation. Please. Last one. Uh, I want to challenge you this week to make God's way your only option. No option B, no option C, no other routes, no rerouting, Lord. I just want your ways to be my ways, period. Just, just period, right there, right? Greatest piece of advice ever given to me when I got married is, is when somebody said, you know, divorce just shouldn't be in your vocabulary. It shouldn't be an option. How I wish people had said the same thing in every other area of my life. Amen. Listen, men, I'm sorry, but lust shouldn't be an option, right? Women, I'm sorry, but worry shouldn't be an option. It just shouldn't be. It's, it's, it's not, there's not an option B. Well, well, Lord, I know that you say don't worry about life, but I'm just going to, I'm just, I'm really looking out because my husband doesn't listen very well, and I'm afraid his health is not going to be great. I should nag him a little bit more about his vitamins and his exercise habits. God says, do not worry about your life, right? There can't be an option B. Can't be an option B. Make God's way your only option. Would you guys pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Um, Even in its moments of its heaviness, I pray that it would now rest upon us, rest upon our hearts and our spirits. I pray 
just in this very, we're just going to have this very quiet moment for like, I don't know, just a minute. Lord, would you speak to us right now? Please, Jesus, Holy Spirit, right now speak to our hearts. Pray this little prayer, friends. Just God, how are you speaking to me right now? Just pray that prayer and give him just a moment. We're going to be quiet here. Just a moment. Seek the Lord. God, how are you speaking to me right now? Lord, we are so far removed from the idea of what it looks like to have a king. To have one central ruling figure. Father, I pray this morning that you would forgive us for all the things that we have misplaced our hope in. (laughs) I pray this morning that you have helped us to see how ugly we've become because we look like them now. God, I don't want to look like anyone else but you. (laughs) Today, here and now, would you begin transforming my life, giving me a spiritual makeover, that when people look at me, they would know that I belong to your family. They'd see the resemblance. In Jesus' name, we ask these things. Amen.